0: We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. It is uh, my pleasure to get to introduce to you Jeremy Grinnell uh, as our speaker today. So Jeremy's going to make his way up. Uh, Some of you, if you've been around Frontline for a while, uh, Jeremy is not an unfamiliar voice to you, Uh, but Jeremy uh, first came to Frontline years ago. Uh, He was with us for a season. That's where he and I really became friends. It's where really we developed a great relationship with one another. But uh, what I just want to say to you is I love this man to pieces. And I'm so excited for what God has put on his heart for you. Today, uh, because there's so much value in hearing from different people and different perspectives as well. So, uh, would you just give it up and welcome Jeremy Grinnell?
1: Thank you, David. Thank you. It is good to be back with you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here on this holiday weekend. When Brian asked me to uh, to do this weekend, he said, "Well, we just finished a series last week, and we're just starting a series next week, so we're kind of in the middle." So you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Famous last words on behalf of the lead pastor. So I began to think, and I, of course, recognized that it was on the uh, American calendar. It is uh, the Memorial Day weekend, as David's mentioned. But does anyone know what it is on the churchly liturgical calendar? So that's kind of a trick question. It's Trinity Sunday, the Sunday, which in which the church historically sets aside to reflect upon, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God. And I said, "Well, there we have. I have it. He gave me carte blanche, and by gum, I'm going to take it." Now, admittedly, the subject of the Trinity is uh, it can be a very academic one, but I'd suggest that for a balanced spiritual diet, sometimes I think we need these kinds of topics as well. We need to chew on them as well. And I want you to recognize that we're about something a little different today. And uh, if you're new here today or you're new, uh, you know, watching online, I hope this is a testimony to the fact that Frontline, here at Frontline, we're not just interested in the shape of your soul, not just interested in expressing uh, worship and religious emotion. We're not just interested in reforming our conduct and learning what to do. We're also here to train our minds. And this is, I'm sorry to say, that kind of sermon. We're going to learn a bit more today about how to think Christianly for the glory of God. Because in Matthew 29, it's often called the the, the end of Matthew 29, the last chapter, called the Great Commission. It's the point where Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and he gives his disciples his last words, and you probably know them very well. He sends them forth to the nations to make disciples, and then what are they? first thing they're to do with these disciples is to baptize them, how? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now... The Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, firmly asserted on nearly every page that there was only one God, one who is worthy of worship, one who sits upon the throne of heaven, one creator and redeemer. And yet very early in the church's life, it was forced to come to terms with the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, who was this God that they worshipped, also prayed to a Father in heaven. That created questions. Understand, the questions of the Trinity are not those created by theologians. They're created by the Scriptures. God prays to God. What shall we do with this? Now understand, I could preach a whole series on the Trinity. I hope Brian is listening. (laughs) Cast your bread upon the water. Come back, yeah. I could preach a whole series on the Trinity. We could talk about what it means, the definitions for it, analogies for it, and actually how there are none. How it works. Is it reasonable? Is it rational? How and where in the scriptures is it discussed? The church's historical wrestling with how to talk about it and how to say it. But they told me I only have 30 minutes. So, or if by reason of grace, 35. So, I have time to pick only one question on this to wrestle with this morning, and I have to confess, it's not the one I'd like to. It's not the one that makes sense to me as the first question, but I'm selecting the one I got most frequently. It's this question Does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? Does it make any difference? Now, I told you it's, that's not the first question to me in my mind, but again, here's the reason why I am choosing it. When I began teaching some 25 years ago, when it came to a subject like the doctrine of the Trinity, the questions I was used to getting from students, they were the questions which to me seemed like the first and most important questions to answer first, were questions like is it true? Is it biblical? Is it thinkable? Is it coherent? Can you make any sense of it? Those were the questions that seemed like the first, most important questions to answer. But as I taught, over the next 15 years or so, and I don't know what the change was, or where, I'm even, not even here to hypothesize about it. Somewhere along the line, I began to realize that the first question was changing. The question that students were asking weren't those questions. They would get to them eventually, but the first thing they wanted to know was whether or not it made any difference. If we're going to invest time and energy and cost into learning about it is, it, is it going to matter? And to their credit, it is possible for something to be both true and irrelevant at the same time. I'm told there are 128 species of maple trees. That's a fact. It is true. But it really doesn't matter. And honestly, if they were to discover 129th tomorrow, or if they were to realize they got them wrong, and there's really only 125, would anyone's life change here? The botanist in the room goes, me, me. <laughs> For the rest of us? No. Is the doctrine of the Trinity perhaps something like that? So that sent me into a, a period of of, of of searching, of reflecting Trying to figure out, does it make any difference? Would Christianity change if we were to no longer say that? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, are still but one God. Or as the theologians might say it, again, forgive me for this, The one living God essentially and eternally exists in three perfect persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a unity of will, attribute, and substance, wholly worthy of worship, wholly responsible for our salvation. I could spend a whole sermon just unpacking that, but I'm not going to. What I'd like to do instead is spend some time offering you three things that the doctrine of the Trinity that I just read there teaches us and why it matters to our faith. The first reason is we struggle at all to talk about God. The doctrine of the Trinity gives us language to explain what God is like. Let's ask the question, if we were to ask it, how are we to imagine what God's own internal life and experience is like? How would you describe it? Who knows what God's inner life is actually like? When a theologian says, and many have said it, that in God there is no deficiency, no want, no need, what does this mean? It is, after all, simply part of the definition, if you're going to be the greatest possible being. It means that God must be, by definition, completely self-contained, having everything necessary to be God within God. God is not walking around looking for things to make God God. Whatever God is, God is complete. God has it. Long before we were ever here and long after we're gone, God will be God. But what does it mean? How are we to think about it? Well, the dogma of the Trinity gives us some precise language to think about, to think about the fact that God's own self contains all things necessary for a rich and full existence devoid of want. I mean, think about it. What relational needs or voids or wants could be conceived of in an eternal community of three self-giving lovers? Why look elsewhere? It's the happiest of marriages. What it means to us is that God does not love because loving fulfills some internal deficiency in God. That's how we love. We love because we're trying to meet some kind of need most of the time. But for God, God loves why? <laughs> because God is love. The divine nature is love, because God is a community of divine lovers within God's own self. That inner life of God, far from as, as, as how I used to think when I was a, a young man, that the inner life of God was some sort of void wasteland of unchanging sameness, static. I mean, isn't that what it means to just sort of dwell out there in eternity? On the contrary, it is a center of such a rich and full life that it makes all relationships of which we can conceive seem like mere associations. In fact, St. Augustine, I think somewhat tongue-in-cheek, even dared to suggest That the bond of love between the divine Father and the divine Son is of such a quality, such an intensity, such a fecundity that it actually constitutes its own divine person, a Holy Spirit. If you take the deepest and most fulfilling relationship you have ever had or could ever conceive of, it would still be but a thin, bleak wraith, a mere analogy... For the glory and depth of the relationship which is God in God's own self. When we say God is love, we are not speaking in metaphor. But that God's own self actually experiences within itself all love. A love so great that of course we are not surprised to find it bursting out. Creating a world, going out of itself to create objects like us with which to share love. Not because God is somehow in need of us, but out of pure delight, pure joy, because God is love. The language of Trinity, therefore, gives us a window, maybe our only window into that inner life. It cannot be described fully or perfectly. No human speech could. Every dogma, every doctrine falls apart and is inadequate when God is the subject. That's a given. And the better the theologian, the better they know it. But how empty would our minds be without this idea? Because it tantalizes that God is this. Within God's own self, it tantalizes our imagination with the promise that has been made to us. Because we have been promised that we will one day take a journey into knowing this God. A journey hinted at in the opening of the Westminster Catechism. Do any of you remember the Westminster Catechism? First question is, what is the chief end of man? Answer? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That the unending exploration of that divine life that is promised to us in that indescribable future will indeed be an everlasting one, inexhaustible, unending, filled with, with unending surprise, wonder, and worship. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God is waiting for us to know God. It's an invitation made to us. But I want you to understand that God is not merely a Trinity somewhere out there in the cloudy vacuums of eternity. We have to come down a few steps... We want to come down and recognize that the God who is Trinity is Trinity here in time and space as well. Because God always works by means of these internal relationships inside of time. Can we have the next slide, please? God works in history by means of these Trinitarian persons. When the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, express themselves to us, they come in these persons. They are recognizable in history. John Calvin said, that, and many others, said that the two great works of God, if you want to know what is the things that God is always about doing, there are two of them. One is creating, you know, bringing things into being, sustaining them, holding them up, causing them to flourish. The other is redeeming. Picking them up and putting them back together when they fall apart. The cre- act of creating and the act of redeeming. Well, I'd like to suggest that both of these have a Trinitarian cast to them in the Scriptures. Think about Let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. When God creates the world, how is it imaged for us there? What is the metaphor that's used? It is not the image of a divine artist painting. A world into existence. That would have been a lovely metaphor, but that's not what was used. It's not the metaphor of a divine engineer building up the world out of Lincoln logs. That also would have been a wonderful analogy. What is the analogy that's given to us? Of a divine speaker speaking words, breathing out. A divine father speaking the worlds into existence. That a word goes forth from him on divine breath, a divine breath which hovers and flutters, a spirit breath over the the deep, the Tahom. St. John and St. Paul both tell us, each in their own way, who that word is. Who is the word that the father speaks? It is the son. The Son, by whom and through whom all things were made. The psalmist and the prophets teach us clearly that it is by the divine living spirit that has gone out into the world that the world has become habitable and fecund and overflowing with all life. It is the triune God who makes all things by means of being the triune God. Clearly our redemption and our salvation works the same way, it's even more obviously We have no other language for understanding our redemption that the Son became human and fulfilled the mission of salvation at the behest of the Father's will. He was sent to do this work and that He was guided, preserved, and marked by the Holy Spirit. Remember His baptism? It is why Peter teaches very clearly in 1 Peter that the Father has willed our redemption. The Son has enacted it in history by His life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit is the one who has applied it to us, both personally, individually, and to we as the body of Christ. Everything God does, God does by means of these three relationships, this triunity. Were it not for the doctrine of the Trinity, for this language, we would be left saying, God did it. Which would be true, but would be very inadequate. It would be incomplete. Because God did it is not enough to explain what we meet in Scriptures. So here we now have to turn a corner. We've come down a step out of eternity and into time. But there's an even more practical change. And this is the one I want to spend the rest of our time together on. We want to cease from being abstract and become very concrete. The doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three and one, casts a very bright and penetrating light on what it means to be human. To be the creature of God. More, to be created and formed as one who bears the divine image. Who goes through the world displaying what God is like to others. Now, two things I want to say about this. The first, it teaches us that we were made for one another. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that we were made for each other. You say, how does it do that? Remember, ahead, go back to the beginning. <clears throat> the man was in the garden and he was alone. Remember? He looked around and all the other creatures of the world, had their other half. They fit together. There was a completeness. But for the man, he was alone. He was wandering around. And God looked at it and said, one of the few times God said it, it is not good. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon him and out of his flesh drew forth one that would become bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And so we find there in the very beginning, in in that great mystery of human marriage, what are we told? The two shall be one. And where have we seen that kind of metaphysical mathematics before? Who else is multiplicity and unity? God who enjoys the sort of rich and complete inner life that we discussed, now fashions creatures intended to do the same at their own level of existence. Of course, it is fitting, it is right, it is good that it should be so. That in, first of all, marriage, but also in friendship, and by extension, all human relationships after their kind, they can only take on their deepest significance and meaning when they are understood in relation to that deeper and richer divine life of the Trinity. Because that is what our relationships are supposed to mimic and display in the world. In the act of completing one another, we reveal something about who God is. We put it on display for the world to see. We become, we are, but we become the image of God. Jesus himself prayed this in John 17, the last night of his life, when he was in the garden praying for his disciples, those 12, those 11 men over there sleeping on the side. Do you remember what he prays for them? He prays, Father, Make those 11 guys, 11 distinct and separate guys, make them one, how? Even as you and I are one. The unity of the church, God's people together, are supposed to mirror the sort of unity that's seen where? in God's own self, among the very persons of the Trinity. That's a tall order. And it creates some difficulties for us. There's a bit of a conundrum in the second thing to be said here. For even in their oneness, the three persons of God, though equal in power, equal in glory, equal in worth, they are not identical. They are distinct. There is unity and there is distinction in them. And I want you to understand that says something not only about who we are as people, but how we are supposed to live together. If our relationships that we have, marriage, friendship, the, the, the Christ church, are supposed to be mirroring this, one, this oneness, then we have to understand something about it. That to be an image bearer is not to lose our distinctiveness. We do not become interchangeable here in the church any more than the man and the woman become interchangeable in marriage. Anybody married will tell you that the husband and wife, this, this man and this woman, whoever they may be, are not identical people. That's what creates the glories and the, the, the not glories in marriage. Well, the same is true here in the church. The goal is not that we should all be made the same. If that were God's goal, then all but one of us is redundant. Even though we are called to be one in marriage or one in Christ, it does not mean that somehow we lose our individual glories and distinctiveness. We've already seen that in the plan of salvation that the one God enacts, the divine players take different roles. They do different things. It is the Father who wills. It is the Son who enacts. It is the Holy Spirit who completes. And yet, and yet, and yet, and here is the point. There is no competition between them, no envy no usurping of place. No loss of perceived loss of value or importance or glory. When they engage in acts of self-deference toward one another, they do not insist upon their own glory and worship at the expense of the other two. But they live together, whatever that means for these persons. They are together in, in acts of loving self-deference without it causing any problems to their unity. We know that the Son does all things for the glory and love of His Father. Please, reread the Gospels. You'll see this. Everything Jesus does, His whole agenda is governed by His Father's name, His Father's will, His Father's kingdom. That's what He wants. His Father glorified. And yet, the Father? The Father's not just sitting up there basking in it all. We're told that the Father, it is the Father who is building a kingdom as a gift for His beloved Son. For whom and through whom he made all things, so that in everything, who should be preeminent? Christ. And of course, the Spirit, the very Spirit who condescends to be poured out upon the church, that Spirit who is entirely worthy of worship and adoration, does not come here to blow his own horn. Here, look at me, I'm the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing in our midst? Always pointing us to who? Christ. Look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Christ. So much so that Peter and Paul both call him the very spirit of Christ in our midst. There is a great lesson here for us. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. This God who is three persons and yet entirely, three persons entirely worthy of worship and adoration. They engage in a perpetual inner life of loving deference to each other, a laying down of themselves for the other. And if the persons of the triune God can so love and defer to one another without concern over status or place, should we hesitate to engage in similar acts of sacrifice for one another? Is it an insult when a husband or a wife or a friend finds it necessary to lay down their rights For the sake of the other? Is that an insult to our humanity and a robbing us of our rights? I suppose there are situations where it can be. But learn, my friends, the lessons of the Trinity. I know the fear that when I humble myself and serve you, that it will somehow indicate that I'm not worth as much as you. When a husband or a wife or a friend humbles themselves to serve the other, that there can be a fear that such an act will rob them of their rights, and we feel that our human value has been demeaned or or diminished because we serve another and we react. No, I will have my rights. I will be noticed. I will not go quietly into that good night. Learn the lesson of the Trinity, for it is not so with God. The persons of God love and serve one another without any such fears. And more, the Son has even descended in humility for our sake. He who was in very nature God did not consider that status, that glory as something to be clung to at all costs, but what emptied himself. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you go and do likewise. It does not make you a lesser person. It does not cost you your pride of place. It makes you like God. It makes you an image bearer. A proclaimer of truth and life. Do not fear to abandon your rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of another. For to do so is to reflect the very nature of God. Far from being tangential or abstract an idea, the doctrine of the Trinity gives us our very language by which we understand the God of the Bible and even understand our own identity in relation to one another. It allows our imagination to grapple with the truth that God is living and that that life is rich, full, beautiful, and truly beyond what we could imagine or think. The Trinity defines and binds all Christian thought in, in much the same way that the doctrine of gravity explains the behavior of anything when you drop it. It gives us words by which to explain it. And in the end, the church has always taken comfort in God's triune nature because it brings before our imagination in the most powerful terms the God who encircles, the God who surrounds, upholds, protects, defends, leads, guides, shields, wards, saves, watches over. The God who hearkens to our every need. What shall our hearts say to such a thing? Who is this God that you serve, that you love? How well do you know this God? Well, just as it would be a little ridiculous for us to say, well, let's just all love baseball and care nothing for batting averages. Or just as it would be a little silly to say, let's all just love flowers but care nothing for the seasons and soils in which they grow. Just as it would be a little strange to say, let us all just love the sick, but care nothing about the nature of disease and health. My friends, please understand, there is no let's all just love Jesus without understanding more about who this Jesus is in relationship to his Father and his Spirit. You see, those who would love God more, those who would love God best, should desire the more to know what God is like. Not because it's abstract theology. I'm not telling you to go buy a systematic theology and read it. I mean, you could do worse. But that's not the point. The point is, this is simply what it means to get to know a person The lover always seeks to know all they can of the beloved, true? Every friend or lover knows that the fastest way to kill a relationship is to treat the beloved as you would like them to be, rather than as they really are. Oh, we are so tempted to make God over in our own image. To tell God what God must be like what God must do, how God must respond. But understand that God's nature, because God's nature is triune, we now have a greater ability to love God for who God really is, not for who we would like God to be. The doctrine of the Trinity, well understood, gives us more to love God with To love God not just with our heart and our soul, but also with our mind. And so I'd like to close this morning with a short blessing before we sing. I'd like to ask you to stand. And I know we're in a time of awkwardness for this, but if you're comfortable for people that you know or that sort of thing, I'd like to ask you to join hands. And please understand, because of the awkwardness of someone, you know, does this, please respect that. It's not you, okay? We're just not all comfortable doing that yet. But to the degree that we can engage in human contact, I'd like that to be the place. I'd like that to take place. Because I would like to close us with a prayer, with a blessing. It's an ancient Celtic blessing called the Chaim, the prayer of encircling. And it acknowledges that there is, as if it were, a circle that surrounds us. And inside this circle, the bounds of which are the Triune God, we are safe. We are loved. We are the people of God. Thou mighty three, Our protection be. Encircling us, you are around our lives, our homes. You encircle us, O Sacred Three, Thou Mighty Three.